Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, Governor Andrew Cuomo announces most coronavirus restrictions are being eliminated in New York. New York City will celebrate its essential workers with a historic ticker tape parade on July 7th. And the mayor's race heats up with one week to go. Good evening in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor-in-chief of The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced today that the state is lifting most coronavirus restrictions. Nearly all restrictions on businesses and social gatherings have been lifted. Some stricter rules will remain in correctional and health care facilities, as well as in schools, public transit and homeless shelters. This is Cuomo speaking earlier today. Not only do we have the lowest COVID positivity rate in the United States of America, we have hit 70 percent vaccination. It is the national goal and we hit it ahead of schedule. What does 70% mean? It means that we can now return to life. While more than 70% of adults in New York State have received at least one dose of a vaccine, vaccination rates vary greatly. In the Bronx, only 57% of adults have received at least one dose of a vaccine, and in Brooklyn, it's 59%. On Monday, Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that New York City will mark another milestone in its recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic a ticker tape parade for essential workers who kept the city running throughout the pandemic. The parade will start at Battery Park, traverse the Canyon of Heroes, and end at City Hall Park. Our first responders, our essential workers, the people who kept us alive, the people who kept the city going no matter what. We are going to hold a parade to honor them, to thank them, to celebrate them. It's going to be an example of the great tradition of ticker tape parades. Ticker tape parades up the Canyon of Heroes. They've happened for generations. But this one is going to have a special spirit to it, a special heart and soul, because it's about celebrating. The race to succeed de Blasio, who is finishing his second term in office, is coming down to its final week. Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams is leading in all the polls in advance of next Tuesday's June 22nd Democratic primary. Civil rights attorney Maya Wiley has surged into second place following late endorsements by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a number of other progressive lawmakers and groups. Businessman Andrew Yang and, and former sanitation commissioner Catherine Garcia are trailing in third and fourth place. Early voting began on Saturday and continues through this Sunday. Polls will be open next Tuesday from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. We'll talk more about the mayoral race later in the show. All 51 city council seats are also up for grabs this year, including 35 seats where the incumbent is term limited. Some of the city's wealthiest men are trying to prevent leftist candidates from seizing a foothold on city council. According to the city, Common Sense NYC, a political action committee started by billionaires Stephen Ross and Ronald Lauder, has spent more than $330,000 on negative attacks against seven candidates it opposes and in, and in favor of 15 candidates whose business-friendly solutions to the city's problems they support. One of the candidates being bombarded with negative ads and mailers is Alexa Aviles, a Democratic Socialist running for an open seat in District 38 in South Brooklyn. We see through these billionaire ta- scare tactics. They know we can't be bought, so they're desperately trying anything to scare people. Let's be clear, we will not let them destroy our neighborhood and displace our working class community. Trump supporting billionaires don't care about us. All they care about is large profit margins, no matter the cost. 
We'll talk more with Alexa Aviles about the battle between big money and people-powered campaigns after the break. On Sunday, thousands marched through Brooklyn dressed in white for the Protect Trans Youth and Black Trans Liberation March. The protest was the single largest demonstration in New York City during last summer's George Floyd uprising. This year's speakers highlighted the fact that more anti-trans legislation has been passed in the U.S. this year than in the 10 prior years combined. Speakers highlighted that lawmakers in 33 states have introduced more than 100 bills that aim to curb the rights of transgender people across the country. And many of these bills are rapidly making their way through state legislatures. Here's a clip of protesters chanting liberation for my siblings on Sunday. Yesterday, all of the remaining ICE detainees held at New Jersey's Bergen County Jail went on a hunger strike in protest of the jail's conditions and to demand that they be released on parole. In April, there were around 100 detainees being held at the jail, and now only 38 remain. Each week, ICE transfers people at whim without giving them notice or reason, say the remaining detainees and their advocates. Detainees are being deported or moved far away from their families to detention centers in Buffalo and Louisiana. The same thing is happening at nearby Hudson County Jail, which also has a contract with ICE to house New York and New Jersey detainees who are awaiting deportation trials. Now we hear from an anonymous hunger striker at Bergen County Jail after he skipped his third meal. And it seems like they've been transferring more people out lately. They've been doing it. They've been doing it, and 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 this is one of the reasons why we're doing a hunger strike. Why? Because one, we are burdened to our families already, providing for us, you know, day, uh, weekly, you know, so we can eat. Because the food is, the food they offer you, you can't even give that to your dog. Two, all of us, are, all of us that's here, our family resides in in, in in Jersey. Yeah, and if they move us out of state, it, 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 it's gonna affect our family. There's nowhere we can get visit. I mean, all our lawyers are around here. We'll be back with more after this short break. Hasta siempre, Comandante Che Guevara, performed by Soledad Bravo. Yesterday marked the 93rd birthday of Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara, who was born in Rosario, Argentina in 1928. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief, 
You can find our recently released June print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. You can also find us online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Here in New York, the mayor's race is dominating the headlines, but all 51 city council seats will also be up for grabs when voters cast ballots in next Tuesday's Democratic primary. With 35 of those council seats open due to term limits, the left has a real opportunity to vote in a block of lawmakers that share its concerns and priorities. To thwart that, some of New York's wealthiest men are pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars into races where the left is running strong candidates. One of those being targeted with a barrage of negative mailers and digital attack ads is Alexa Aviles. She's a Democratic Socialist running for Carlos Menchaca's open seat in District 38, which encompasses Red Hook, Sunset Park, Greenwood Heights, Windsor Terrace, Diker Heights, and Borough Park. A mother of two teenage daughters and a member of her local community board, she has been slammed by her detractors as a, quote, danger to her community for supporting reductions in spending on the NYPD's $6 billion annual budget. Alexa, thank you for joining us on WBAI Radio to talk about this uh, attack on you and other candidates that is coming in the final days of the primary. Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Uh, and uh, also just want to say um, we're joined by our my co-host, uh, Julia Thomas, is with us too. And uh, 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 Julia, welcome to the show as well. Thanks so much, John. You bet. Yes, thank you, Julia. And um, so, so uh, Alexa, uh, first of all, can you just uh, start by describing uh, the the nature of these attacks that that you're coming under? And, and I understand tens of thousands of dollars are being uh, spent by uh, Common Sense New York, the group that's uh, sponsoring these attacks. Yes. So we've learned that uh, Common Sense, um, as you've mentioned, has spent over 330000 and has spent about um, $20,000 of attack ads, both print and uh, digital attack ads uh, in our race. Um, and is really going after all this, the entire uh, DSA for the city slate, uh, plus another um, council candidate, uh, John Cho. And, and what what uh, specifically? Uh, I saw a picture of you on on Twitter the other night. You you were almost uh, brandishing uh, this uh, mailer uh, uh, with a, a certain almost like a badge of honor uh, that you would be attacked by these people. But what what were they saying about yeah, you? Yeah, you know I. <laughs> You know, I, I just laugh. I, common sense is so ironic, uh, an ironic name for this group because it really does lack common sense. Um, you know, the, the, the mailer, first of all, is like a template of something they decided, um, you know, they would just use for all the candidates and, you know, makes claims, you know, I'm a dangerous mother mama bear. Uh, who single-handedly is, you know, responsible for increasing crime. Um, you know, the connections and leaps and bounds they're going is totally absurd. It's misleading, uh, you know, pasting together sentences and just, you know, it's the typical scare tactics that we see used across the country and actually in other places across the globe uh, where we have, you know, far right wing attacks on, on left candidates um, anywhere actually around the world. So the same tropes and, you know, I think it really shows that they're nervous and it shows that, you know, 
that they're taking us very seriously, and we are serious. Uh, we are serious about protecting our communities, about protecting our housing, and not giving in to just handing over our public assets uh, to private interests. Uh, we're going to fight for our community. Yeah, absolutely, Alexa. And I wanted to ask about how, I mean, you know, these attacks, you know, it's you and six other progressive candidates who are being targeted. And how is this sort of, you know, this targeted campaign by common sense, how has it sort of brought you all together and sort of, you know, standing against um, this, you know, this, a lot of billionaire dollars ultimately opposing the agenda of the left? Yeah, I mean, it just really shows, right? It, it, it really demonstrates to the community, right? Who is behind what and what kind of interests they're protecting, right? They really want to try to slander us and put, you know, and scare people because they want to continue to have their way. Um, and so it is just clear in all the districts that um, we're standing firm. And um, it's just a clear indicator that, you know, our community sees right through this. I've gotten so many text messages uh, from people I've worked with for decades, right, in the community that know me, they know who I am. And, you know, dangerous is, is not a thing they use to describe me. Um, certainly, you know, a strong, strong-willed uh, and, and uh, opinionated and a value-based candidate who believes in our community um, and fighting for what we deserve. So I think it really just kind of takes off the the fleece of of what we see playing underground all the time and really shines a light on dirty politics, uh, on the lengths they'll go to promote fear. And, you know, if if the real estate Mongols were interested actually in our health and well-being, I have a slew of things they could actually invest in to support our communities. Um, but clearly that's not their interest. They're just interested in extracting profit. Right. And and it was the city that uh, broke this story a few days ago. And uh, at least at that time, the, the candidates who were listed as being targeted uh, were uh, Christopher Marte in District 1 in Manhattan, Adolfo Abreu. District 14 in the Bronx, uh, John Cho in District 20 in Queens, uh, Jasmine Carr, District 23 in Queens, also Mumita Ahmed, also in Queens in District 24, and Michael Hollingsworth in District 35 in Brooklyn, and of course yourself. Um, four of those uh, individuals are a part of the DSA uh, for the city slate, um, mm -hmm. uh, Adolfo, uh, Jaslyn, uh, Michael Hollingsworth, and yourself. And, and uh, of course, uh, Mumita Ahmed was uh, hit with this uh, barrage of attacks in February when she was running uh, in a special election in, in District uh, 24. She also identifies as a, a democratic socialist and was a longtime Bernie organizer. And it, the attacks did seem to have an impact in, in her district. I mean, uh, I mean they really uh, just uh, threw everything at her. And, and also were in support of a conservative uh, Democrat that had a long sort of machine uh, background. And uh, so how are y'all counteracting this? I mean, I, I know there's people that have known you for decades and, and, and think this is a, a laugh, but for the many people in the district that don't know you yeah. personally, what kind of, I guess, people powered campaign are y'all conducting that, that can overcome this kind of uh, appeal almost to sort of the lizard part of people's brain to make them, fearful before sure. they think 
think things out. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's, it's uh, through a couple of mediums, right? I think, you know, I'm out there every day talking to folks, fielding questions, you know, um, and also being very upfront about what people are receiving, right? Or what they will receive. So we've been, you know, debunking the myths, letting them know that this is, you know, mailers coming from one, one of the top 25 richest uh, men in New York City, who's a, an avid Trump supporter and cares nothing about our community. So we're letting them know where the origins of this is coming from. And once you say that, people already know, you know, w- why they're doing this. Um, our community is smart and resilient and really does know that. And so we're just, you know, taking it head on and letting them know that this is what's happening. Um positioning people, we're on social media, we're talking on the doors and we're letting folks and asking who's received and who's not received these, you know, ads and just uh, being upfront about it um, and our organizing efforts. And, you know, that's that's how we will govern and plan to govern is in community and partnership with community and really creating space to have these discussions. Okay, we'll, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Alexa Aviles running a people-powered campaign in District 38 in South Brooklyn. Thank you for joining us on 99.5 FM this evening. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great night. Okay. All right, we'll be back with more after this short break. You can also find an indie interview with Alexa on uh, independent.org that went up earlier today by the Indies' Ted Ham. But we'll come back in, in, a, in a moment, and we'll be talking uh, – with one of the best uh, political columnists in the city, Ross Barkin, about the state of the mayoral race and uh, other races. And uh, we're looking forward to that conversation. Back in, the, back in a moment. I'm sick and tired of hearing things from uptight, short-sighted, narrow-minded hypocrites. All I want is the truth. Just give me some truth. Give Me Some Truth by John Lennon. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You can find our June print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. It, it includes an eight-page special section on the upcoming uh, uh, primaries here in New York. Uh, you can also find us online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-N-T dot O-R-G. Uh, before we continue on with our second guest, I want to encourage uh, – Everyone who can do so to please give generously to WBAI, 212-209-2950. Also, you can uh, make that contribution at give number two, wbai.org. You can give a one-time contribution. You can make a, a sustaining monthly contribution, become a WBAI buddy for as little as 
$10 per month, and it's you, the listener, that can keep community radio on the air here in New York. We'll be giving that number out again later in the show. And um, before we go to our, our second guest, uh, uh, Julia, we had a bunch of coverage in uh, in this uh, new issue of The Independent, including you had a really in-depth feature on, uh, Di- on Diane Morales, uh, once an ascendant uh, left-wing candidate that uh, uh, flamed out swiftly in, in late May and uh, really, really enjoyed your coverage of, of, of that candidate and, and the unusual uh, turn her, her campaign took. Thank you, John. Yeah, it was really fascinating to really closely follow Diane Morales' campaign in the weeks leading up to its you know, implosion and kind of see this very sudden turn um, for, you know, those of us who were on the outside and not, um, and suddenly just seeing kind of this um, departure of staffers and rapid resignation of people. And then the, you know, the, the eminent strike of the bulk of her staff and now sort of um, this reality and exposure of Diane Morales's a campaign that perhaps was not as progressive as many perceived it to be. So now, you know, with the primary nearly upon us, it's been, it's really, um, you know, I'm looking forward to talking to Ross about um, sort of, you know, his observations of the election and also just sort of contextualizing, you know, how we are at this moment in juncture right now where Diane was at one point sort of the, one of the favored progressive candidates. Right. Yeah. And one of the people we talked to in that article you published was uh, Ross Barkin. And Ross has really uh, emerged in recent years as uh, really one of the premier uh, commentators and analysts of of New York City and New York State politics. Uh, He's also got a book coming out uh, later this uh, next week called The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus and the Fall of New York. We're going to talk about that a little later in our interview but uh, Ross, first of all, welcome to WBEI Radio, and thank you thank for joining you. us this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. Very excited to be on Talk Mayoral Race as we hit this final week, and maybe some Cuomo if we've got time. I know the mayor stuff is hot right now. Yeah, we, we definitely want to talk about both of them. They're both uh, really important. Uh, so uh, first of all, uh, if you want to give us your sense of uh, where the mayoral race uh, stands, uh, and you wrote, I think, over a year ago in, in one of your Substack articles about how Eric Adams could be a for, formidable candidate. And, uh, and that pre- uh, prediction uh, seems to be coming true. Yes. So I always thought um, Eric Adams was a very serious candidate who had a could build a winning coalition. Now, would he put it together? That was the question. And... It appears as of today, he is the front runner with the inside track for the Democratic nomination. Now, that's based on polling trends. There have been a lot more polls recently, and they have consistently showed Adams in the lead. They have shown gains for Maya Wiley and Catherine Garcia. They have shown Andrew Yang slipping. At the same juncture, you have four candidates who are never terribly far apart from each other in the polls, and you have ranked choice voting which is, of course, the great wrinkle here where we're not going to know the results till July. And, you know, a candidate could theoretically not finish in first and win, though that seems unlikely. So I'd say as, as of today, Eric Adams is the favorite. And I do believe that's because he has built a coalition that was always there for the taking, which was working class blacks, working class Latinos, 
an outer borough moderate whites, both you know old school ethnic whites and Orthodox Jews, and it's a tough coalition to beat. I mean, it's Bill De Blasio in 2013 uh, pulled off a very impressive feat, which I think doesn't get appreciated enough. Which is he was an openly left of center candidate who won working class black voters and progressive white voters and did very well at Latinos as well. Uh, and no candidate is building a coalition that broad. Um, but I do think if you're in a mayoral race, it always helps to have a bedrock of support from people who really show up to the polls. And that means you really want to have, you know, working class, middle class black voters in your corner and Eric Adams being Brooklyn's first black voter president, you know, having a record uh, with police reform, though, though his views on policing are pretty mixed. He certainly has the inside track there, and it appears he's bringing that all together. But again, the caveat being, let's see what happens in a week. Right, and and Ross, I I, I wanted to ask you also about sort of the recent surge of Maya Wiley, and you know how that has shaped up in the last couple of weeks amid this implosion of Diane Morales's campaign, and sort of how you situate her up against, um, you know, Andrew Yang and Eric Adams. Sure. So, so Wiley's definitely gained strength with uh, really two things happening for her that, that were completely out of her control. One was Diane Morales, who, who I don't think was ever going to win, but clearly had an, an inside track to the, the young, progressive, you know, millennial Gen Z left. She uh, she imploded, you know, her campaign workers quit. There was a lot of turmoil there, and, and she's effectively dead. And Scott Stringer, who really was emerging as the standard bearer for the progressive uh, left of center, you know, mayoral campaigns, and had been the first choice of Working Families Party, had won UFT, seemed like an inside track for the New York Times endorsement. He uh, was accused of sexual assault. You know, a woman said he sexually assaulted him 20 years ago. There really was never a lot of evidence produced to back up that claim. But I think that 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 kept him from building out his coalition bigger than it was. He was never a polling leader, but certainly kept him from growing. And then there was a second allegation that really seemed to seal the deal. And Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who does matter, endorsed Maya Wiley. And that certainly is a shot in the arm in terms of media attention and money. And I do, in my own circle, see a lot of people now committing to ranking Wiley first, not necessarily overly enthusiastic about her since she is, you know, a conventional center-left candidate who worked for de Blasio and kind of had a mixed tenure there as his counsel. Um, but there's a growing recognition she's probably the most viable left of center candidate at this point. I think the question for her is, can she recreate the 2013 de Blasio coalition? Now, she can do part of it, we know, with progressive white voters and up, up upscale affluent black voters and, and voters of color. I, I think Wiley's coalition certainly... Um, is strong in higher class, more affluent precincts. I have no doubt she's going to do well in Brownstone, Brooklyn. She'll probably run well in Manhattan. De Blasio did all of these things, but de Blasio also fused that with a lot of votes in outer borough Brooklyn and Southeast Queens with blacks. And right now, Eric Adams appears to be the working class black candidate, not Maya Wiley. And we'll see if that changes. But I think that's one of her big challenges 
going into RCV is being able to overcome Adams and, and his support with uh, working class blacks and Latinos. Right. And, and one thing that's, or a couple of things that are striking about where we stand right now is, I mean, three of the top four candidates, uh, uh, Adams, as well as Yang and uh, Catherine Garcia, are uh, nobody's idea of a, of a left of center uh, candidates. Um, and Adams and Yang also have done very well with, with people who are non-college educated, make under $50,000 a year. I think sometimes uh, people on the, on the left can lose track of the fact that there's a, there's a lot more people in, um, in the working class than there are in the professional managerial class, uh, as it were. And, uh, you know, what the, the pre- preferences of the progressive left might be don't always uh, sync up with um, – a lot of the rest of the city and you've written about this some and, and you've, um, you know, taken a couple of shots at groups like the, the working families party and, and the, the, what you call the NGO left. Can you talk about what you see as a little bit of a, a disconnect between the left and some of the people that wishes it could speak for, but don't seem to be listening to it. So the left is strong in New York city. Um, I think regardless of this mayoral race, you've seen great gains in the state legislature and you'll see gains in the city council from socialist candidates, from candidates backed by progressive organizations, candidates backed by the working families party. So, I mean, I, I think overall the left is healthier in New York than it's ever been. Right. That that's that I want to make sure I state that. So no one interprets this to be a, a doom and gloom sort of prognosis. Um, I do think that there is broadly speaking, and this is true even nationally in a sense, a disconnect culturally between the progressive and socialist and NGO left and the working class in terms of culture. The working working class voters, I believe, will accept any economically left policy um, you know, if argued to them in the right terms, right? Everyone wants free stuff, which they should. They want free healthcare, free or cheap housing, jobs. They want money, right? The stimulus bill was was super popular. The free checks, which, you know, Andrew Yang popularized from his own campaign, UBI, right? The, the social safety net being bigger is popular. And, and Republicans know this. That's why they heat expansions of the social safety net because it gets harder and harder to, to pull them away. But I do think there is a division on culture. Uh, you know, quite frankly, the left's message on policing is out of step with uh, working class black and Latino communities. Now, these communities don't want aggressive Bloomberg style, Giuliani style policing. They, they don't want cops to lie cops to abuse them, to over, to stop and frisk them aggressively. They don't want like Bill Bratton style justice, but they do want police. And you hear this repeatedly, you talk to people, you know, you can see it in polling again and again, the idea of cutting police departments drastically is not popular in these communities, especially with rises in gun violence. They want to see perpetrators held accountable. If you have a family member who's killed by uh, someone, you know, killed by a gang member, killed by someone with a gun, you want the police to do their job and hold that person accountable, bring them to justice, right? 
And, you know, the left's argument is often that, well, police stink at their job anyway, clearance rates are low, so defund them. And and that's not that realistic because it's not going to increase clearance rates if you defund them. I, I, I support, and I think most people do, increasing social services, increasing investments in these communities. Certainly the NYPD wastes money. It's overly militarized. I've said this for years. Really the, the post 9-11 NYPD is a lot worse in terms of waste than, you know, the pre 9-11 NYPD when it really just became this like counterterrorism vehicle and harassed Muslims. Um, but at the same juncture, I do think the defund movement is not one that resonates in working class communities of color. And also, you know, again, on culture, you know, working class voters, you know, can be more culturally conservative, certainly on social issues, certainly on religion, more church going, um, you know, they, they are not steeped in the lingo of academia. And one of my pet peeves is when these non-government organizations or NGOs use very hard to understand or esoteric terminology that is just not used by ordinary people. When they describe groups of people in ways that are just not used in any street corner anywhere, you have to really meet the working class where it is. Um, you can't condescend to them. You can't uh, feed them ideas that are totally out of touch with their reality. And you can't go to a Spanish speaking community and, and use a term for, you know, ha- who, uh, uh, use a term, for example, like, like Latinx or Latinx that they don't use, right? I, I've, I've spent my whole life in, in New York City, go to Sunset Park, go to Washington Heights. They'll call themselves Dominicans, uh, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans. They don't use this word. Is this a major problem? No, but to me, it's emblematic of how out of touch the sort of academic part of the left is where they're trying to impose language on people who don't use this language. And this is this is not why Maya Wiley is losing. I'm not saying that or why she's not winning. I, I'm just using this as a broader critique. And I think just finally to circle back to the mayoral race, the left never had a strong candidate. I mean, that's a reality. I do think if someone like Jamani Williams was in this race right now, he would be in pretty strong position, maybe to be in a one-on-one with Eric Adams and RCV. He's from Flatbush, East Flatbush. You know, he has a working class black base. He's also popular with progressive whites. You know, he, he's someone who could thread that needle. There wasn't a candidate in this race who was well built to do that, and that's kind of where we're at now. Right, and and thinking about the evolution of the dynamics in this race, um, Ross, I guess what what do you what is what's your take on kind of the you know uh, Andrew Yang sort of falling behind in the polls and faltering a bit. Um, at this moment in time that, you know, even a, a couple months ago, it was sort of looking like he he was in the lead and might um, very well um, be the winner in this in this case. But, um, you know, I guess your your take on the current, you know, why uh, that's happened, why his campaign has sunk a bit, as well as I guess, um, you know, you recently reflected on in a, a, re- a column of yours in your Substack political currents about sort of why, you know, the argument that you have that's uh, that that Yang is uh, more is worse for the left um, or sorry, that Adams is is worse for the for the left than Andrew Yang. Could you talk about that? Yes, uh, I, I, I believe Andrew Yang faltered for 
two two reasons. You know, one 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 was self inflicted, and then one was a bit out of his control. So one, the media coverage was very um, you know rightfully aggressive. I have no problem with aggressive media coverage, and it was pretty much nonstop. And people interpreted this to me, you know, Yang's going to benefit. And I, I think overall it was a mixed bag for him where he got a lot of scrutiny from mainstream outlets very early on, whereas Eric Adams did not. Eric Adams was not even appearing in the New York Times regularly until I want to say a month ago. I mean, we can double check that. But you go back and look at the number of stories written about Andrew Yang, the number of stories written about Eric Adams. Eric Adams was a non-entity um, in a lot of this coverage. And I think it worked to his benefit because Eric Adams has a very deep and problematic history that did not go scrutinized early in the race and did not define him in any way. And it's coming now, but it could be too late to define him. We'll see. So, um, and the other part is self-inflicted, you know, look, you know, high information, liberal voters matter in New York city. You can't win without completely it's, it's put this way. It's, it's very hard to win while alienating completely high information left of center voters. These are the people living in, you know, Brownstone, Brooklyn, the Upper West Side, the Upper East Side, um, Dumbo, Williamsburg, you know, Astoria, right? And so on and so on. You know, Andrew Yang coming in had hurdles to overcome. You know, his his thin resume being perceived as, as not serious enough. To be honest, he didn't do anything to... to change people's minds on that front. Um, he sounded unprepared, naive. He got facts wrong. He often seems to be talking off the top of his head. And I'm not really sure why, because I don't think he's dumb. You know, he graduated an elite law school. He ran a good presidential campaign. But quite frankly, through these months, he's not acquitted himself terribly well, given that his goal should have been to really at least um, if not win over these voters, at least convince them he's worth putting on the ballot. And I think he did not do that. And I, I do think a lot of high information left of center voters are going to drop him completely. And there's also yeah. the hiring of Bradley Tusk. I think that was a mistake. And I was, I was skeptical of it from the beginning. Um, I'm not saying Bradley is like a bad operative. I, you know, I think he's probably fine. The issue is there's so much baggage. You, you never bring on a consultant who's going to cause negative headlines for you. And from the very beginning, it was coverage from myself included on Bradley Tusk history in New York City. You know, his support for Uber, his dealings in the tech industry, his gambling interests, and, you know, his, his general nefariousness and kind of how he's this outsized figure, um, you know, uh, on in politics and someone who, who really hates the left, like hates the progressive left, hates the socialist left. He's very open about it, tried to defeat de Blasio. And so when you bring someone on like this, you are going to own all the Tusk baggage. And the more the race went on, the more you'd see people wondering, well, you know, Andrew Yang, you know, he seems okay, but Bradley Tusk is there. And Eric Adams doesn't have Bradley Tusk. Some of them vote for Eric Adams. And I do think Eric, given that he's a former police captain, given that he held elected office, he's got an advantage with these high information uh, liberal voters. And, and Yang has to find a way to win without most of them. Can he do it? Maybe. Is it, is it going to be easy? No, it's going to be really hard. And, and his right. coalition to me is kind of shaky, but we'll see, right? Again, things could change. That's always the caveat. Right. And and I would also note uh, Yang uh, right out of the box uh, uh, went out of his way to, to bash the BDS movement and insert himself into the 
Israel-Palestine controversy without seeming to really uh, know or understand much about it at all. And I think that also probably antagonized a lot of people on the left. And It, it, it did. And it's funny because Eric Adams holds like literally the same views on Israel and BDS, but Yang was way more ham-handed about it and sent out tweets that went viral because he's a bit bigger Twitter account. And yeah, I think he leaned in very hard early on to win this Orthodox Jewish vote, which does matter. But I also don't think it's decisive in a huge Democratic electorate. And for some reason, the Tusk strategies, you know, brain trust felt we've got to lock down Orthodox to get everything else. And I mean, or, look, Orthodox Jews, it's a conservative community. Their issues are also not the issues of a lot of other progressive left of center voters, particularly Israel. And then you had the, 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 uh, you know, clashes where, where, you know, Israel was, you know, bombarding Gaza and yeah. killing civilians. Yang sends out that tweet. And yeah, I think that was certainly turning off a lot of people on the left who might've considered sticking him on the ballot, but are not going to. And, you know, Yang's strength originally was he's going to appear in a lot of ballots. I just don't know if that's the case anymore. Maybe right. he still does, but I just, I don't know. It, it seems less likely. Right. And and we're almost out of time here, but there, there were a couple other, couple more things I just want to ask you to touch sure. on briefly. Um, uh, you were a candidate yourself three years ago. You, you ran a, a very competitive campaign for state Senate uh, out in, out in Bay Ridge. Um, and, and, you you didn't prevail, but you ran a, a very strong campaign. Uh, if you can give us some sense of kind of what it feels like, what it's like right now to be a candidate in the in the final week of the race, and then um, I wanted to ask you to say uh, something about you know just a little bit about your new book. I, I wish we'd had more time to talk about it, but I definitely want to give you a chance to let people know what's in that book. Yeah, you've been yeah, one of the best uh, chroniclers of the uh, foibles and flaws of uh, Andrew Cuomo. Thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll try to move through this quickly. So just, just on, on the book first, Andrew Cuomo, um, Coronavirus in the Fall of New York, the, the book's called The Prince, um, you know, an allusion to Machiavelli, Cuomo's Machiavellian, and, and he is a prince, his father was governor. And it's really a corrective to the narrative that Cuomo did well with COVID. Over 50,000 people died. He dithered early on. He compared COVID to, to the flu, like Donald Trump did. He was late to shut down the city. He tried to cut funding to hospitals and, um, you know, really ran an austerity regime throughout 2020, punished public universities and was overall disaster. You know, was it Cuomo's fault that all these people died? I mean, no, it's COVID. A lot of things happened, but Cuomo really deserves no credit uh, or, or very little credit because it was an utter disaster in New York. And so I see this book really as a, as a corrective to his propaganda memoir that came out a year ago. And so I urge you to pre-order. It's out next week, uh, June 22nd from OR Books, OR Books. You can go to the website, order it. We're having a big party. Everyone's invited June 24th um, at 7 p.m. at Tradesman in Bushwick. So people can come to that as well. Be very exciting. We'll have some special guests. And on the last week of the campaign, it's very exciting and very stressful. You know, your, your adrenaline is really pumping. You believe you're going to win. I, I, I think most campaigns in the final week, unless things have gone terribly wrong, like the Morales campaign, think they're going to win. You're very high on the energy. You're very high on the volunteer support. You're very high on the doors you're knocking if you're knocking on doors. And there's just this, this crescendo, this really building of great excitement, and you're not really sleeping much. You're out a lot. 
And, you know, it's all just really um, surging toward this one day. And then that day is incredibly nerve wracking. And that's where you get your verdict. And <laughs> once those votes start coming in, your heart is just going, you know, a million miles an hour. It's pounding so hard. And uh, so I empathize with the candidates in this final week. It, it's a very fun week, but it's a very stressful week. And it's a week you're not sleeping and not really seeing people. You're just out constantly. If you're doing it right, you're out constantly. And you're not coming home till very late. And you're waking up very early in the morning. All righty. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Ross Barkin, uh, author and uh, political columnist, thank you so much for joining us on WBAI Radio this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. I had fun. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll be back after this short break. We're going to hear about a uh, democratic struggle in Peru. We have Medea Benjamin to join us uh, after this short break. Matanza de Cayera, or The Killing in Cayera, by the Hummingbirds of Uncapi, who are Peruvian uh, protest singers of the 1980s. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm Julia Thomas with John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You can find our recently released June print edition in our red and white news boxes across the city. You can also find us on, online at, I, at independent.org. I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. For our third segment, we pivot to Peru, where the daughter of a former dictator is still trying to reverse her apparent defeat in the country's June 6th presidential runoff election. Uh, Keiko Fujimori is alleging fraud in her contest against leftist Pedro Castillo, who appears to have won by a narrow margin. Fujimori's attempts to annul 500,000 votes in heavily indigenous parts of the country, despite no evidence of systemic voter fraud, are delaying the official announcement of the results. The latest counts show Castillo in the lead by a difference of about 50,000 votes out of the more than 17 million votes cast. A victory for Castillo, a union leader and former school teacher who is the son of peasant farmers, would mark a significant shift to the left for um, Peru, which, uh, which has long been a stronghold of neoliberalism. Fujimori, who is the daughter of Alberto Fujimori, a former Peruvian dictator, who is now in prison for human rights abuses and corruption, 
is also trying to stay out of jail due to her ties to an ongoing corruption case. Here's Keiko Fujimori speaking at a press conference last week about how her efforts to contest the election results are part of a larger, quote-unquote, battle against communism. El Perú es un nuevo epicentro de confrontación. Confrontación entre el comunismo y una economía libre, entre el control de la prensa y la libertad de expresión. That's Keiko Fujimori saying, Peru is a noose at the center of confrontation. Confrontation between communism and a free economy and between press control and freedom of expression. International observers and progressive forces around the world continue to express serious concern over Fujimori's allegations and have said they are an effort to steal the election. To talk more about the evolving situation in Peru, we're joined by Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. She was recently in Peru to observe the elections. Medea, welcome to the Independent News Hour. Hello, Julian. Nice to be on with you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. Um, so, um, Medea, you're recently in Peru. Tell us about, you know, your observations on the ground, what you saw and experienced. And, you know, as people were at the polls June 5th and now in the time since, we're now seeing these alleg Fujimori's allegations of, of voter fraud. Well, in Lima, it's a very conservative city. It's the opposite of the United States, where the cities tend to be more liberal and the countryside more conservative. In Peru, you find the city was pro-Keiko because they hear a lot of the propaganda on the media that's controlled by the right wing, and they all also are more uh, tending towards the status quo, whereas in the countryside, where you have the poorer sectors of the population, they were overwhelmingly in support of Pedro Castillo, who is a candidate uh, unlike any other scene before in Peru, because he's such a man of the people. He's a, you know, comes from uh, illiterate parents, a countryside where people are still living without electricity and running water, where the school where he worked for 24 years had to be built by the community itself because the government wasn't there to help. He's been a union activist for the teachers. He's a farmer. He grows sweet potatoes. Uh, he plows his own field. He wrote a road to the voting booth on horseback. He uh, goes around uh, with a big uh, hat that's um, the uh, the wide-brimmed hat of the peasants working in the field. And then he carries around a big oversized pencil uh, that has become the symbol of his campaign. So everywhere you go, you see uh, among his supporters uh, different variations on this pencil. Uh, and it's a very uh, great symbol because it, it is part of his whole message that we need to invest in education, in health care, and the needs of the people. And the slogan for his campaign is a very beautiful one, which is uh, no mas pobres en un país rico, which is no more poor people in a rich country. And then he ends it by saying palabra de maestro, listen to the word of the teacher. So it was a beautiful campaign he ran, although he was smeared terribly by this right-wing slander, trying to make him out to be a terrorist, a communist, wanting to turn Peru into the next Venezuela or Cuba. Uh, but as you said in the intro, it looks like he is just squeaking by 
in this cliffhanger of a race. And, and what does uh, Castillo propose to do? And unfortunately, we're running short on time. Um, sorry you get the short shift here, but can you give us a, a quick sense of uh, what Castillo uh, would do if he prevails in this election? He wants to rewrite the Constitution so it's not one that is geared towards multinationals and the market, but instead gives a greater role to uh, the government to regulate the markets, to renegotiate the agreements with the multinational corporations, especially the mining companies, so that more of the profits stay in the country and put more of the budget into things like education and health care and secure greater support for indigenous rights and rights of nature. Mm. And, and uh, you know, for our listeners, uh, with, with Peru, as you said, uh, Lima is uh, quite conservative. Uh, Lima was also, I mean, the, the where the, the viceroy of Spain uh, was, was set up. And there's definitely a, a, a strong uh, conservatism that runs in Lima going back centuries and, and then the indigenous population in the countryside. But um, before we have to go real quickly, for people who want to uh, continue to follow what's happening in Peru or support the democracy movement there, uh, any, any place they can uh, stay abreast of things? Well, they can go on to our website, codepink.org, where we're putting out reports about it. I just did some articles, so you can just Google my name, Medea Benjamin, and Peru. And um, yes, it's important. This can be a major shift for the future of Peru, as well as contribute to the progressive shift in all of Latin America. So it's a very historic, epic election. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, uh, Medea, uh, for sharing your analysis and joining us this evening on WBAI Radio. Thank you so much for having me on. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that wraps it up uh, uh, for uh, this week's show. We'll be back same time uh, next week. And uh, I want to thank our our board engineer, uh, Reggie Johnson, uh, uh, co-host Julia Thomas, and our producer, Amma Gagarin, who did a tremendous amount of work behind the scenes. And again, we'll see you same time next week. So bad, yeah. I feel so blue. Mm. I got to make it right for everyone concerned. Even if it's me, if it means it's me, what's getting bad? Cause I could never.